T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. But all of that is just part of the long continuum. Do the technologies that we've developed work together well enough now that we can do this as part of normal human endeavor? And that's where we are in history right now. That's the exciting part. This week, I had the last minute opportunity to sit down with Chris Hadfield and essentially talk about how exploring space can help us solve the challenges facing humanity today. If you don't know who Chris Hadfield is, you're missing out. If you are familiar with the former commander of the International Space Station, you'll really appreciate this episode. It's an episode filled with a realistic hope for the future and advice on how to be a part of the change you'd want to see. I'm Jacqueline Swan, and this is Technality, a podcast that explores how technology is shaping our future. Today, I'm looking at how going to space changes your perspective on how to save the world. Meet Chris Hadfield. I'm an engineer. I was a combat fighter pilot. I was a test pilot. I've flown about 100 different types of airplanes. I was an astronaut. I uh, flew in space three times. I'm the only Canadian to ever command a spaceship, and I'm the first Canadian to ever do a spacewalk. I'm an author. I've written um, four international best-selling books, and I help run several space companies. I speak all over the world, and then I work maybe what's most germane to our conversation today. I run a, a big piece of an international technology incubator called the Creative Destruction Lab, and how can we take ideas and turn them into not just successful businesses, but influences on society itself, solving some of our biggest technological problems. And then I also am a musician. Quite an impressive, extensive resume. And I actually knew you were a musician because um, it was the Space Oddity video that you posted where you were playing the guitar in space. Absolutely legendary. Yeah, <laughs> but David, David Bowie loved the version of that that I did. And uh, it was a huge compliment to me. It's such a, such a, a clever and interesting song. So uh, I, it was an honor to cover it, but also it was even more of a delight to have David Bowie love it. I'm sure it was an honor for him to be I guess, to have one of the few songs that has been played acoustically in space. So. Well, he always dreamed of flying in space. Look at how pervasive it was in his art and his songwriting, Mars and Starman and all of that. And, and so he wrote that song when he was 19 years old. And for him to have a song that he wrote as a teenager performed in the place that he always wanted to go, I mean, it was just a big, uh, big smile on his face in the last few years of his life. So I'm, I'm very lucky and happy to have been part of that. Well, it's incredible that you were able to kind of give him that wish and allow him to actually see that in some way. If you've ever looked up at the night sky, you've probably dreamt about exploring the stars or circling the earth and just taking it all in. It's a dream that spans back centuries. And while you can probably go back further, the novel Salminium by Johannes Kepler was written in 1608. The story follows an Icelandic boy and his witch mother as they travel to the moon via daemons pushing them there. They also put wet sponges up their nose to help them breathe in space. It's not, you know, 100% accurate, but you work with the knowledge you have at the time. Once they're on the moon, though, Kepler gives a detailed description of what he believes the Earth would look like from the lunar surface. It's often referred to as the first real lunar treatise. 
But space travel has permeated our dreams and inspired our media for centuries. Long before we even began to have the idea of the technology we'd need to get there. Of course, only a few humans have actually lived this dream. About 600 people since 1957, to be exact. Chris being one of them. Space travel as a whole is very pervasive in society. It is a dream that a lot of us have. But you've actually experienced it. When did you know you wanted to go to space? I love science fiction as a kid. I like comic books. And then as I learned to read better, I love science fiction stories. I was a big fan, I still am, of Star Trek. I watched it on TV when it was new. Or the movies like 2001 A Space Odyssey. So those opened up the room for me to imagine what might happen. But it was the reality of people flying in space that then gave me a path. When I saw that, hey, this isn't just X-Men, this is a real thing that people are doing. So if they can do it, then maybe I can do it. And I just need to change who I am. And when the very first two humans walked in the moon, July 20th, 1969, I was about to turn 10 that night. I thought, if they can do it, shoot, I can do it. And I just need to change who I am. I just need to develop my skill set. And so I actually consciously decided just before I turned 10 years old that I'm going to turn myself into someone who can fly in space. December 1972 is the last time humans were on the moon, almost 50 years ago. However, missions like the Artemis Project are looking to send us back to the lunar surface as soon as 2025, which in the grand scheme of things isn't that far off. If you're not familiar with the Artemis Project, it's a mission to bring humans back to the moon and establish a lunar base there. A base that will allow astronauts to live on the moon while setting up the possibility for traveling to Mars and beyond. The project is led by NASA, but unlike last time when they went to the moon, the US isn't working alone. The European Space Agency, Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, and Canadian Space Agency are also using their resources to complete this project. Several private companies and countries with emerging space agencies are also on board with future missions, signing their name to the Artemis Accords. The world, in a sense, is rallying around building the foundation for future space exploration. The very first human being flew in space when I was a kid. So spaceflight's younger than I am. It's a brand new thing. And we've had people permanently living on the space station for almost 22 years. So we left Earth permanently 22 years ago, and we've sent out probes all across our solar system, robot probes all over the place, including a couple that have left our solar system, the Voyager probes that are in interstellar space right now. And we've also sent out exploration ships with people on board, first into Earth orbit, and then we sent uh, 12 people who have walked on the surface of the moon. But all of that is just part of the long continuum do the technologies that we've developed work together well enough now that we can do this as part of normal human endeavor? You know, it's like uh, airplanes in 1905 or cars in 1910 or trains in 1830 or boats in the year 1000 or whatever. Is the technology good enough now that it'll allow us to get to other places safe enough that this can, can, be, can become part of common human effort, common human society and civilization and culture. And that's where we are in history right now. That's the exciting part is you can go buy a ticket to fly in space right now. And it's expensive. But one of the people that just flew on Blue Origin, he was a government employee his whole life. He just saved his money. And instead, on his retirement of buying a fancy new sports car, 
he bought a ticket to fly in space. So it's not just you know, some unattainable amount of money. It's still expensive because it's brand new, but we're on that cusp right now. And so in amongst all of those things, in amongst, you know, global positioning system and internet from space and telecommunications and, and weather forecasting and all, all the other capabilities, it's also becoming now economically much more feasible mm -hmm. to not just stay in Earth orbit, but to go as far as the moon. And there are private companies that could right now land on the moon without having any government money at all. That's a pretty new and amazing thing. So it's not as what I think about it. This is the natural development of 10,000 years of civilization and technological invention. And we're right on the cusp now of you know, leaving Earth permanently, not, not even just orbiting the world, but having people live in different places. It's an amazingly exciting time in human history. I was talking to someone from the Canadian Space Agency, and he was saying how we kind of stopped going to the moon because there was no reason to be there. We just didn't have the technology to do much else. But now we're in a time where we have the technology and the know-how and just the international connections. Um, I disagree with you. We didn't stop going to the moon because there was nothing to do there. We stopped going to the moon because it wasn't worth the money. That but if you can radically drop the cost, if you could get to the moon for 10 bucks, then you'd go to the moon. And so where is that threshold of complexity, danger, and cost right. so th such that it, it becomes worthwhile. And, and we're, at, we're at that tipping point now with the new spaceships that are being built. We're still a long way from going to Mars. It's still financially impractical to go, but th that doesn't mean it's not a solvable problem. We're figuring stuff out as we go. But the big change is not, not an increase in need to go, it's a radical improvement in the technology and decrease in the cost that enables us to go. That's the big change. Money, it's always money. Um, but now we know how to like mine on the moon, which is really interesting. And like, we wanna set up tests on the moon for when we do go to Mars. As you put it, we'll look back on this period in history books for when it was a turning point in space exploration. If you took the moon, and laid it out on the earth uh, in size, it's bigger than Africa. So imagine if we just discovered a continent on earth that, mm. that was bigger than Africa and we hadn't, hadn't surveyed really at all. We just scratched the surface in a couple spots. And we had now for the first time built sailing ships to get us to that brand new continent. I mean, what would we do collectively? We would want to try and get there and explore it and then survey it and see how we can make that fit into human commerce and human understanding. So that's what the moon is now. It's a big, untapped, and now relatively accessible continent of discovery and of potential resource for the Earth. So that's a big difference as well. After the break, we explore how space put a lot into perspective for Chris and some advice for the more existential listeners. Leaving Earth's orbit, the ultimate form of escapism that probably puts a lot into perspective. When you've left everything behind, how could it not? And with everything going on around us, the ability to leave Earth for a bit would probably be a welcomed experience for most of us. Chris, however, is taking his experience off planet to help build a better future actively taking on the challenges facing humanity. How are you bringing your life in space to improving life on Earth? We're about to go over 8 billion human beings alive on Earth. 8 billion. 
We have never had that many mouths to feed. We've never had that many toilets to flush. We've never had you know that many homes to build. But we have never fed so many people as we did today, ever in human history. We built it on the backs of technology. And, and we have made radical improvements in the last 200 years in the quality of human life, in lifespan, in, in infant mortality. But what has really improved the quality of human life has been our relentless improvement of technology and understanding how it all fits together. But we built it on the back of fossil fuels because that was the technology that we had available with the Industrial Revolution. It's been a tremendous boon, but it's unsustainable. We can't feed eight or maybe what we're going to get up to, probably a peak of around 10. We can't feed and, and house and, and deal with the waste of 10 billion people if we don't change some of the fundamental technologies that allow us to, to thrive. We have to have different energy sources. We have to have different methods of food production. We have to have different ways of dealing with our waste. But none of those are impossible problems to solve. We just have to push the best and the brightest. We have to push our educational institutions. We have to push our businesses and incentivize them so that they won't just continue making a profit on the status quo, but we actually are going to address the big problems that are facing us as adults right now. And to me, that is the very essence of everything that I'm involved in. The companies that I help run, the technologies that I help advance, it's to address the big existential problems that we face at our particular time on the earth and how can we address them the best way we can and we've got to improve the quality of life for as many people as possible in a sustainable way that's the fundamental mantra that's what we have to do and that's what dictates all of my decision making what am i going to be working on where am i going to be leaning my shoulder against the wheel that's what all of us should be focusing on in amongst earning our daily bread and, and doing the things that, that are important to us as individuals I am 100% behind that. That's kind of what this podcast is about in a way. I get to speak to people who are kind of actively facing the existential threats that are threatening us. The first episode I did was actually with a woman who works at the Pentagon doing uh, nuclear arms disarmament because <laughs> nuclear war is something that's like in the zeitgeist again. It's something facing us alongside climate change. I'm only 26. But I kind of look down the, the path. Is there going to be a five years? Is there going to be a 10 years? Every 26-year-old in history has felt the same way you do. Every oh. single one. I did when I was 26. Mm -hmm. A thousand years ago, they felt the same way. And the problems were just as massively real. Uh, it's just problems evolve as our technology evolves. But just, you know, a long person lives 100 years. So 200 years ago was 1822. In 1822... Half of everybody died as a child. 50% of everybody died as a child, and 90% of everybody lived in abject poverty. So if you made it to 26, you were one of the lucky ones, but you were probably not knowing where your next meal was coming from if you were in with the 90% of the world. And we have made enormous improvements in the last 200 years so that the things that were existentially cripplingly overpowering for them are not the ones that are constraining us. Ours are more global and they're just as serious, but, but there's nothing new. They seem more real and they seem more overpowering because we are the current crop of adults. And I don't know, of course they solved the problems in the past. They couldn't have been that hard. Our problems are the only problems humanity has ever faced. That's just normal human nature. It doesn't lessen the seriousness or the necessity of what we are facing and what we need to do. But I think a historical perspective is really important. 
So throughout history, we've all felt existential. That's all well and good, but it doesn't really solve anything. So the question becomes, what exactly are you supposed to do? I think one of the most important questions to ask yourself is what pisses you off the most? What is it that you think is tremendously unjust in the world? Or what is it about the world that is wrong and could be righted? Everyone's got a different answer to that question, but you should have that question clear in your mind. Make up your list of these are the five things that are the most irritating, the ones that really make me mad or really make me want to do something. And once you've identified what those things are, then say, okay, are we at a time in history where any of those problems can be addressed? Does the technology exist so that we can maybe face some of those problems? And if we can, then how can I be part of the group of people that is changing what we're doing so we can face those problems. That's what the younger generation needs to be looking at. The easiest thing in the world is to go, oh, they've handed us this horrible problem and nobody's ever had it as bad as we ever had and there's no point in even trying, I just give up. That's what every young generation feels like. That, that's normal. That's what they felt like in Greece 2000 years ago. You know, that's just normal. And Socrates and Plato, you know, they, they despaired at the youth of the day. That's just, they were the same when they were young. That's normal. I've orbited the world 2,650 times. And when you orbit the world and see the reality of our planet, one of the things you become aware of is time, that the world is four and a half billion years old, billion. And life has been uninterrupted on earth for four of those four and a half billion years. The world is not going anywhere. Life is not going anywhere. They're incredibly tough. We couldn't wipe out life on earth if we made it our number one purpose. They are tough. You come back from earth eternally optimistic that this is here to stay. But if we want to have a good quality of life for ourselves and our community, and hopefully everybody on earth in a sustainable fashion, then we've got to get to work. We've got to actually change the way we do things. And each one of us can choose some piece of that to try and push back the edge of how that change needs to happen. That's what people need to focus on, whether it's agriculture or technology or exploration or communications or energy production or treatment or whatever it is. None of those problems are unsolvable. We just have to decide this is the problem that I am going to work on. I really appreciate that a lot of your advice is essentially stepping back and putting everything into perspective. Floating back. Floating back. <laughs> That's even better. Before we ended the call, I asked Chris where he believes space travel will go in the next 10 years. We are radically dropping the cost of getting to space. It's going to be 250 times cheaper to get things to space than when I first flew to space. 250 times cheaper. So that completely changes the entire game of how we can access space and do things in order to use space around the world to better understand and support life on Earth, but also to explore other places and to make other places our destination. That drop in cost and increase in reliability, it's like going from, uh, I don't know, from the earliest crazy dangerous Alexander Graham Bell airplane to suddenly being able to just buy a ticket on a 777 or a 787 or something. When you have a radical change of technology so that things are safer and cheaper, then it opens up all new businesses. And that is what's happening right now in our lifetime 
in space and it's opening up huge business. We're going to have not just an earth orbit commerce system, but there will be an earth moon economic system just like exists between countries on earth. And, and, and we can hardly even predict all that that's going to open up uh, for us, but that's just being built right now. And it's being enabled by the creativity of, of the vehicles that get us there. And that's what's really going to change in the next 10 years. Space, the final frontier. Really though, as Chris mentioned, this is a pivotal moment in history. Humanity is returning to space with the intention of going to Mars and beyond. Much like the space race did and seeing man walk on the moon for the first time, there's a good possibility that this will inspire a new generation of scientists and thinkers. Going to space and confronting the problems facing humanity are not mutually exclusive. We can do both. We have done both. So if you're like me and Chris and wondering what it is you can do to make the world better, it may be time to ask yourself, what makes you angry? The easiest place to find me is chrishadfield.ca or .com. I'm writing my fifth book. If you want to learn about space or if you want to be thrilled about space, you should read my new book, The Apollo Murders. Uh, it's being made into an eight-part television series. It's in 15 languages. You could watch my masterclass. You could watch the National Geographic series that I did or the BBC series that I did, but only do those things so that you can learn from them and then make different decisions with your own life. I, I, that's why I made all those things. And I hope that you find them not just entertaining, but when you come away from them, maybe you, you think a little different when you look up in the sky. Thank you for listening to Technality, a Narcity Media podcast. It's hosted and produced by me, Jacqueline Swan, to never miss where your future is headed, subscribe to Technality wherever you listen to your podcasts. And for more tech content, Ground check out Technality Socials. Major tongue. 